So hello and welcome to the first Atlantis football podcast and today I'll be discussing a number of different topics. Um, I'll try to be doing these, these podcasts weekly, uh, discussing some topics that I won't be making videos about because I can only make a certain amount of videos per week. But on the podcast I'll be discussing a wider range of topics so make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you listen on. Because my plan is to release these sorts of podcasts uh, weekly and uh, maybe some bonus episodes as well if you guys want to see that. So I'm going to start off the podcast by discussing the most pressing issue facing football at the minute and it's the coronavirus pandemic. When will the um, football season restart and how will they lay it out so that it will um, won't infringe upon next season or the Euros or the World Cup in 2022? Well first things first there has been a lot of talk about maybe them getting back to playing football behind closed doors in May. But if you ask me, I don't think that's happening at all. There's zero chance that that will happen. If you look in Scotland, I think they delayed the date uh, for teams returning to training until uh, the second week of June or maybe the first week of June. And you've also got to factor in that um, that teams are going to need three or even four weeks to get players back up to match speed. If you think about at the end of the season, players go away for three or four weeks on their holidays. And when they come back to pre-season, they have three or four uh, or quite a long time over the summer where they're playing friendly matches as well to build up their match fitness before they get straight back into the season. So to expect players to just come off this uh, two or three month period of not playing at all, not even being able to train with their team, and then just to go straight back into competitive football isn't realistic at all. So if we're talking about a four-week period where they're training, you're going to add the four weeks onto the June uh, at the earliest where they can come back to training. You're looking at maybe July or August where they start the season again. I'd probably say August at the earliest. Just because I don't see uh, the whole uh, Premier League and the Football League being able to get back to training for the start of June. So I'm going to say July they come back um, and then just say they have a month of preparation before the season starts again. That starts again in August. You're then looking at if we broke up um, the Premier League midway through March. You've got two weeks of March, April and then two weeks of May. So you've got about two months of football at least that you've got to cram in probably three months maybe if you include the Champions League, the FA Cup, stuff like that. So um, when you're looking at this, you've got to factor all that in. So let's say they get back to playing football again in August, then it's going to take about three months to finish the season, probably maybe two and a half months once they squeeze it all in. So theoretically, the season will probably finish around November. So this is going to drastically change the football calendar. However, this might not actually be such a bad thing as if you look at the Qatar 2022 World Cup that's going to change the calendar anyway the Qatar 2022 World Cup is scheduled to run from I think the 21st of November to the middle of December so the football league is going to have to change around that anyway so with this coronavirus if you start again in August you could potentially finish by November so if you move this on uh, not till to next year to the year after 2022 it will be the perfect time to finish the season so my suggestion would just be instead of trying to revert back to the previous football calendar, to actually go with this new schedule for the next um, few seasons, once you can get back to the uh, normal calendar after the Qatar 2022 World Cup, MLS do it, MLS play from March all the way through the summer months. Um, I think they do have a break uh, when there's a World Cup on, or when uh, America are playing in the CONCACAF uh, Cup. Um, not sure when those when the CONCACAF tournaments happen, but definitely for the World Cup, they do have a break, I think. Um, and they, they have their playoffs around November. So theoretically, you could do this for the Premier League as well. And that's what I would suggest doing. If you can finish the season in the last two and a half months, finish it 
um, by November. You then give teams um, maybe a month, maybe two months, I'd say, off and start the league again maybe end of December or January. And then you play through, um, you could maybe have another break. Oh, you'd have to have a break for the Euros. That would be maybe a, a six-week break. So you can fit in that six-week break and then finish again uh, the 20, which would be the 2021 uh, no, it would be the 2020-2021 uh, season would finish the same as uh, this season would finish in November. And then once you come round to the 2022 World Cup, you finish the league just before the cup, the uh, World Cup is due to start. And that way you don't have to pause the uh, domestic calendars and um, have a break in between and then go back to it. You just finish it as you would with a normal World Cup. So if anything, this coronavirus pandemic that has caused uh, football to stop the stoppage for football could actually be a blessing in disguise for football in terms of the calendar obviously there are going to be major financial issues for clubs involved but what this um, my theory of how to finish the season would do it would avoid the uh, legal problems that the premier league and other dom other domestic leagues would have because if you void the season like some people want then there are going to be a lot of legal challenges, um, not just for the Premier League, but for the Championship, for La Liga, for every team that's involved in a relegation, involved in potentially getting into the Champions League. There's going to be a lot of clubs that will be entitled to file lawsuits against um, whoever is in charge. Because if you look at a team like Leeds, the top of the Championship, and that if they don't go up because the season is void, that's around £150 million they're losing out on. Same with, say, a Sheffield United, who look like they could still be in the fight for a Champions League place. Manchester United, the relegation fighting teams like Bournemouth, who are only on, um, I think they would go down on goal difference, which is a major problem, because how can you um, judge it on goal difference if every team hasn't, uh, first of all, played the same amount of games and, same, and, and then, sorry, played the same opponents? That's a massive issue. So this, my uh, theory of finishing the season... In November would first of all help the football calendar adjust to the Qatar 2022 World Cup. It would probably allow the Champions League to be finished as well. They'd have to shorten that obviously, but they, it would allow them to finish it, finish it, and it would also um, avoid these massive legal challenges that clubs are going to have to ensue. And potentially, if you start the, the league in say August or September, rather than starting it in June or July you may be able to get packed stadiums rather than having to do it behind closed doors, which is going to be imperative for particularly championship clubs, also for teams down the bottom of the Premier League. I know Burnley are in significant financial trouble, so if they were able to play games in front of uh, their fans, this would obviously bring in um, game revenue and uh, would avoid maybe financial costs that would, in would have to be incurred if they had to play behind closed doors. So that would also potentially solve that issue. And also a major problem that's going to be occurring because of the uh, coronavirus is the devaluing of players. So if you look at transfermarket.com, you can obviously see the different um, values of players. And they've reported a significant drop in the value of nearly every player. If you look on our website, I think nearly every player on the site has decreased to some extent. I think that it was any player born after 1998 had their market value devalued by up to 10%. And I think over the course of the whole market... There was 9.22 billion lost in value in total. So who's going to be hit hardest? So it's obviously going to be teams that have just recently signed players for big money. So if you look at Griezmann at Barcelona, they signed him for 110 million pounds in the summer. There's no way they will be able to recoup that sort of fee for him. His market value has decreased significantly. I reckon now if they were looking to sell him, they'd probably only be able to get maximum 70 million because you've got to factor in. Firstly, he's 29 now. 
he's on massive wages. Who's going to look to sign him? So even if there wasn't this massive problem, Barcelona would be looking at a significant financial loss on uh, Griezmann. Also, you've got players like Coutinho as well, who were signed for big money. And they haven't really... I think Coutinho's done a pretty decent job at Bayern Munich. But he hasn't torn up um, any trees. And he hasn't really um, cemented himself in that Bayern squad. And making them uh, them really push the boat out to sign him. So he's in a bit of a predicament as well. Because who's going to be paying more than £60 million for Coutinho in the summer? And especially with those massive wages as well. He may be looking at another loan. You've got Hamas Rodriguez as well. He's only got one year left on his contract. But he's still on those massive wages. Which is going to rule out teams like Napoli, Borussia Dortmund. Unless Real Madrid subsidise some of them which they will be able to do for a year. But after that year, um, Hammers isn't going to be on those same wages. So is he going to be prepared to take that massive cut? That's the question. And it's going to be a massive issue for sides, particularly big sides, with those big players that they wanted to shift. But also players um, at clubs like Leeds. Um, if you look at Calvin Phillips, maybe, or um, uh, or any, any of the championship sides who have top players who the Premier League might be interested in, they probably would have been looking to um, sell them for maybe £30 million plus. They probably won't be able to do that. I've heard reports um, on the Transfer Window uh, podcast with Duncan Castles. He's had a few people on and from other areas as well that potentially you'll see 25% of a player's value wiped off. So just say Calvin Harris, uh, Calvin Phillips sorry, um, was going to be sold um, by Leeds for £35 million. Uh, he may only be worth about £25 million now, which is obviously going to be a massive issue for those clubs. Um, it may actually help out the market because what was happening is that sides had uh, too much control, if anything, over certain players. So a good example of this would be Harry Kane at Tottenham. So he's got a contract until 2024. I've already done a video about this, so if, if you want this in more detail, check out that video. But basically, because of the longevity of his contract, it means that Tottenham are in no position to sell him. And it's basically ruling him out of any move because he's going to cost £120 million plus in the transfer window. And who's going to be prepared to pay that for a 27-year-old Harry Kane coming off the back of a few injuries? So it's really, um, it, the market was really sort of skewed towards the clubs. Even though pit people are saying they have uh, that player power is on the increase, clubs had really skewed the market. If you look at players like Sigurdsson and Richardson, um, being signed for £50 million. There's no way they were ever worth £50 million. They're probably £30 million, uh, £30 million players. But because of the uh, financial wealth in the Premier League, Swansea and Watford were able to charge that fee. And Everton, for some reason, were prepared to pay it as well, which definitely skewed the market as well. So overall, one good thing that could come from this uh, financial loss in the market is that maybe fees start to reduce a bit because they were getting out of hand a bit. Um, they were. It, it seemed like they were having exponential growth, where you were having hundred million pound players nearly every summer. Um, maybe that gets reduced, so that might be a positive. But talking about a player who would probably be worth around hundred million pounds is Paul Pogba. So as I said in, uh, on my YouTube channel, I will be doing a Let's Argue series, and um, one of the points that someone made was, "Is Paul Pogba a waste of talent?" So I'm just going to go into this, and I would say that Pogba. Overall, you'd probably say he was at Manchester United just because the last two seasons seem to have really been wasted. Mourinho really just took a, a lump out of Pogba's career. He's obviously suffered from injuries, but he's obviously not been playing in the type of side, the quality of side that you would expect someone off his level to be playing in. 
let's say when he's 23 and he signs for Manchester United, he signs for Alex Ferguson's Manchester United in 2010 as a Paul Scholes replacement. He'd be challenging for the title. Um, he'd be played in a much better system, a much better team with players like Van Persie and Wayne Rooney ahead of him. And I think you do see Pogba become one of the best midfielders in the world, maybe alongside Yaya Torre's progression. But because he's been at Manchester United, which has been at an absolute debacle under Mourinho in his last year, even in Mourinho's second last year, uh, 2017-2018, there was all the problems going on with Pogba. The system was quite defensive, couldn't get the best out of Pogba himself. And um, everyone was sort of waiting for that next manager to see Pogba explode. And he did explode for a bit under Solskjaer, playing ahead of a double pivot in a 4-2-3-1. But injuries, and I think he did realise in the summer that this Manchester United side was pretty poor. It was worse than the Moyes era side. And that has been a massive contributor to why he struggled. He doesn't have the creativity alongside him in the team to really get the best out of him. He thrived when playing that counter-attacking system because he didn't have to rely on players behind him like Fred and McTominay. Being able to open up defences, simply being all they had to do really was get the ball into him, let him dribble with the ball and his pass uh, through balls into the likes of Rashford and Martial would be the thing that created the chances. And this is where he um, played his best football for Manchester United, arguably. But if we look back at the early years at Manchester United, we can actually see that statistically he did perform very well. And I think he was being over-criticised. Uh, largely because of the price tag and because he played for Manchester United. And at the time, Manchester United were the club everyone loved to hate because Mourinho had just come in. It seemed like, um, particularly the Liverpool-favoured pundits, if you look at Souness, uh, Jamie Red Redknapp, a lot of the Liverpool-favoured pundits were sort of picking out Pogba as the main problem, even though there was so much more wrong with the side than him. And if anything, he was a victim of the side's poor um, style of play under Mourinho. And that really cost him. But I'm just going to look back at some of his statistics. So if we look at his key passes, in the 2016-17 season, he was actually fourth um, for the most key passes created by any central midfielder. He created uh, two per game. With only Kevin De Bruyne, Cesc Fabregas and David Silva completing more. The season after the 2017-18 season, he was a bit lower for this metric, completing 1.6 key passes, which still was the fifth most of any central midfielder in the league, which does show that Pogba was actually creating chances in this very poor United side. Maybe not the 2017-18 United side, which finished second, but certainly the first year um, when they had Ibrahimovic and they finished sixth, um, they were struggling to create chances. Um, but Pogba was a main source of anything they did create, really. He was the hub of the side, and I don't think he got enough credit for that role that he played. It does look like he'll leave this summer, and I do think he'll look back at his Manchester United career and think what could have been if he had joined maybe in 2010 uh, when Sir Alex Ferguson was there replacing Skulls. It could be a different story. Uh, maybe if he'd stayed at Juventus as well, you would have seen him potentially uh, get that move to Real Madrid a year later um, because... That did seem like it was in the offing. It did seem like a uh, move that Real were lining up, potentially as a Luka Modric replacement, which is what he'll probably be now if he makes that move to Real Madrid. But whether he'll actually make that move is obviously dependable on the market. I think another year at United will really kill his chances of going down as one of the all-time great central midfielders. I think he has to move this summer um, to Real Madrid or Barcelona. I don't even think Juventus is an option at the moment, just because... First of all, I don't think they'd be able to afford it because of the financial um, implications of the coronavirus, their massive wage bill, etc. Also, I think Real Madrid would be the perfect club for him. He can come in. He doesn't have to be the main guy 
Um, Nets expected to score goals, create, defend as he's uh, expected to do at uh, Manchester United. He'll have a specific role on the left of uh, Zidane's midfield three, and that will really suit his play. So for Pogba, for Pogba's sake and for Pogba's career, he should be looking to get that move. Whether he will, I don't know whether he will be able to. I think if he stays at United another year, he will he will go down as a wasted talent. Someone that could have been one of the best central midfielders in the world. He had all the attributes to follow a Yaya Torre or a Frank Lampard. That sort of dynamic box-to-box midfielder who scores goals, dribbles, creates. He could have been that, but sadly, like a lot of players, uh, Manchester United have really halted his uh, career and stagnated his career. If you look at players like Marcus Rashford and Martial, they are slightly younger, but even their careers have stagnated to a, a degree. Martial's career definitely stagnated under Mourinho, and that's a massive problem for players now moving to Manchester United. You look at Jadon Sancho as well. Um, will he want to potentially face the, the same consequences that Pogba and Martial have faced? Um, I think that may get overlooked just because once the money's there, once the opportunity's there, players are obviously going to be optimistic. But it's certainly something to keep an eye out for, uh, not to just expect that big move and then think, well, if it doesn't go well, I can get, um, I can move again in two years. Look at Neymar, he's um, stuck at PSG now, unable to get that move because he's essentially priced himself um, out of the market due to his wages, due, due to the transfer fee. So it's definitely something that players have to look into when they make these big moves. So when I put out my um, post about the new Let's Argue series, one of the other uh, comments I got was, is Zidane overrated? So this is probably one of the most debated points about Zidane. Is he an overrated manager because he's at Real Madrid? Because he had Ronaldo in the side. Did that sort of uh, elevate the performance of the whole side rather than Zidane's tactics itself? I would actually say Zidane's a pretty underrated manager. Not because I think that he doesn't get the credit he deserves, but because he is slapped with this label of being overrated. Um, like many managers are, I think Luis Enrique had that problem at Barcelona. Pep Guardiola has had it to a certain degree as well. When you're at a top club, if you are very successful, people put that down to you being at the dominant club rather than the actual manager himself. But if you look at Zidane, um, I think it's evident his quality. He won La Liga, um, took the title away from Barcelona in his second season, which is something only Mourinho has been able to do in the last, what, 10 years which is a major achievement. They were also the best side in the world at, at that point. People can say this was because of Ronaldo, but Messi was at Barcelona, Neymar was at, Neymar was at PSG. There's these great players all around the world. Even though Real Madrid have, had, uh, had a great side during those three seasons, um, I don't think you can put three Champions Leagues in a row down to luck. Certainly the first one was very fortunate. If you look at a draw, I think they played Wolfsburg in the quarterfinals. I think they had Napoli um, around the 16 Wolfsburg quarterfinals and Manchester City in the semi-finals, which was a relatively easy run. And they did um, have Atletico in the final. So that was an easy, easy run. You can certainly put one Champions League win down to maybe a fortunate run. If you look at Roberto Di Matteo, you could definitely argue that. Potentially Rafa Benitez as well. You could argue that as well. But um, he, the season after the 2017-18 season, he outclassed um, Juventus in the Champions League final that year. Uh, against Bayern Munich as well. He uh, beat them over two legs. Um, there's been a lot of games where he's really shown his tactical sophistication. Even this year, I thought Real Madrid's performance against Manchester City was very good um, and they were unlucky to lose that game 2-1. I think that um, Zidane, Zidane isn't a exceptional um, possession-oriented, offensive-minded coach. He's a very good setter up of um, a pressing style, a defensive system to execute in a specific game. 
He very rarely gets dominated um, in particular games. If you look at the game against Barcelona, Real very rarely get uh, dominated as they did under Lopetegui and even Rafa Benitez when those sides played Barcelona. There was almost an instant improvement when Zidane came in. I think he's um, out of possession shapes are very good as well. Um, he's really got that f- uh, 4-5-1 doing exactly want, what he wants to do outside, um, sorry, um, when they don't have possession. Um, so I think he, and I do think that in the Champions League, managers who are more predicated on defensive setups, who excel in this regard rather than possession oriented, offensive minded um, approaches, do tend to do better. If you look at Mourinho, he's had massive success with his defensive style of coaching. Um, he excels um, setting up sides to uh, defend. And this has got him a lot of success. Zidane is sort of Mourinho, but in a more evolved sense than Mourinho um, has failed to do. Mourinho hasn't evolved. He hasn't built up that pressing system. His pressing systems are pretty poor now. They're easy to play through. And it does uh, result to his sides just sitting back in uh, in two banks of four uh, or a 4-5-1 and really inviting pressure. But Zidane... For me, is the evolved version of Mourinho. His pressing systems are very good. He knows when how to execute a high press. Um, he's done this multiple times. Look at the Man City game. Look at uh, the game against Atletico Madrid, uh, Barcelona this season as well. He had he's had a lot of success in big games, and that's not just a coincidence. Um, you look at um, managers like Pep Guardiola, and you can see the problems that he's had with his system in certain games. Because once you're in the Champions League, you're playing effectively one-off games. I know they're two legs, but they do sort of boil down to one-off games. And um, if you're playing a more expansive system, obviously you're more prone to mistakes happening from individual players. And this can cost you the game, as, hap- as happened for Manchester City in the last few seasons against Liverpool, Monaco the first year that Pep was in charge, and against Tottenham, which was most evident where um, individual mistakes really cost them. But if you're setting up in a more defensive style, you can manage that a lot more. And the uh, if you do uh, lose a game, it's more likely to be down to the whole system, the system as a whole, rather than individual mistakes. Because obviously, in a more defensive-minded, conservative style of play, where you're you're more regimented in your uh, defensive um, style, you're more focused on your defensive style than you are on the attacking approach. Uh, there's less likely to be defensive errors from individuals and if you are managing a Real Madrid or a a Juventus you can rely on your attacking players um, to really uh, elevate the side rather than having all these intricate patterns uh, developed in the attack that Guardiola would have Zidane would uh, heavily rely on just Carvajal bombing down the right or Marcelo bombing down the left and whipping in crosses for Ronaldo Um, and Benzema's movement as well uh, was pretty unique to him and that would get the best out of Ronaldo as well so Zidane didn't have to do much in the attacking phase but defensively he was very very good and I'd actually I wouldn't put him as high as Klopp or Guardiola but I'd definitely put him in that tier underneath a manager who will do a very good job for any European side I do think he suits a side that have um, he's not say a development manager like a Klopp or a Pochettino is he's not going to go into say a Napoli and build him up um, by bringing players and develop a system over the long term he's more of a Juventus style of manager who will come in set up the team to get uh, the best out of certain players and um, really uh, take their tactical levels to the next level which can help them in the Champions League and that's probably his next move um, the, the club that would probably suit him next would probably be Juventus that would be the obvious option just because they are the most dominant side in Syria. And um, 
there is that improvement to be made in the Champions League, which Sudan would obviously bring. So now on to another point that someone asked, uh, what league do I think is the best league? Um, I'm going to break this down into two different sort of questions. The first one is going to be which is the best quality, and the second one is going to be which is the one that I prefer to watch. So um, in terms of which is the best quality, in terms of the best quality players, best quality teams, I think that um, Ligue 1 and Serie A are definitely, of those top five leagues, the bottom two. I think whilst Ligue 1 does have a PSG Lyon, Lille as well, um, they have some teams uh, towards the top of the league and they have with some really interesting sort of players that you might want to just watch to see what is coming because a lot of the players that are fed into La Liga and the Premier League that become these top players do actually start off in Liga and if you look at Riyad Mahrez and Golo Kante, Payet, players like that. Um, so I think Ligon is a really good place to sort of scout players. I think they do have great value um, for money, as Newcastle showed and other clubs have shown, like Leicester, uh, throughout the years. That you can get a really good player for a cheap amount of money from France. I do think they have a lot of sort of dross in the league, same as Syria. If you look at the bottom of those leagues, it's re- like really poor standard, which is why PSG and Juventus seem to sweep these sides away, but then struggle in the Champions League. I think that, um, particularly in Ligon, there's, I don't really know what it is, but it just seems like a drabness at the bottom of the league. It's definitely the financial situations of the clubs um, with Syria as well. Um, I think that's what the league is really suffering from. I think if you want to make a league better, you sort of have to build up from the bottom. You really need to improve those bottom 10, really, because every every league, um, whether it be France with Ligue 1 or Italy with Syria, have like a top six or seven, which are all a decent quality. But it's really like that bottom section that really um, cements how good a league is. So um, I'd probably go Ligue 1 fifth, um, Syria fourth in terms of quality. Now into the top three, I think a lot of people have been stuck with this myth that the Premier League is so much better than all the other leagues. And I'd say this probably was true for a certain period from maybe about 2006 to maybe about 2014, I'd say. Um, that was probably the case because the bo- the bottom half of the Premier League was certainly a lot stronger than La Liga's bottom half or the Bundesliga's bottom half as well. And I think the main thing that La Liga struggled from was that Real Madrid and Barcelona were so good. These were, if you look at Mourinho and Guardiola's era, that sort of three-year period where they were both at the club, um, they were probably two of the best teams in history. So obviously they were going to blow away whoever they played. People were saying, well, they beat Getafe, they beat teams like this 5-0 every other week. But when they played sort of teams like Arsenal or... Um, even like uh, Arsenal would get routinely slumped by Barcelona every single uh, campaign, it felt like. So obviously when Barcelona are playing like a Getafe or an or a, uh, Espanyol or a team like or a Levante, they're going to sweep these sides away, sweep these sides away as well, sorry, um, just as easy as, easily as they do with Arsenal. Not because the quality of those teams is terrible, but because Barcelona is so good. And I think that's what the league suffered from a lot. Atletico did certainly do a lot to build the reputation of La Liga. And I think as Barcelona and Real Madrid have sort of declined from that standard, you've seen La Liga get a bit more competitive. You've seen teams like Sevilla really pushing up the league, Getafe are pushing up the league. And I think La Liga probably at the moment, if you swipe away the top seven or the top six, say, from the Premier League and La Liga, I'd say that uh, the La Liga teams, certainly the bottom 14 sides are a lot better than, or maybe not a lot better, but they Definitely better ran in terms of the financial side and how they manage their money, how they recruit players, and definitely the tactical side in terms of the coaching than the Premier League side. So if you look at some of the Premier League teams, 
absolute te- like terrible transfer strategies. Um, uh, coaches in the league. Look at West Ham. I, how they haven't been relegated, I do not know. Newcastle have been terrible this season and somehow managed to finish 13th despite playing, playing terrible defensive football. They've got the lowest XG in the league. Norwich as well have been terrible, not really done anything. So you've got a lot of dross in the Premier League now as well. And this is sort of coming because of a lot of complacency between teams. It seems like the English teams are really stuck in their ways. Um, they prefer to sign like a player they've watched and have sort of a good experience with rather than looking at the analytics and maybe get a smarter sign-in um, for a less amount of money for a younger player who will develop. That seems to be what the Spanish sides do and certainly the German sides are very good at this and I think this is why I'd put the Bundesliga at number one. I'd probably maybe put... I'd probably still put the Premier League two and La Liga three. But I do think the Bundesliga, especially if you look at teams like Bayer Leverkusen... Mainz, Hoffenheim, they do recruit very, very well. And this sort of does, um, if you watch them play in the Bundesliga, this does make for also an entertaining game because you're not just watching, I don't know, Glenn Whelan in centre midfield, you're watching these young players who you're sort of interested in um, seeing their development, like Hoffenheim and uh, Bay in central midfield. So when you're watching Hoffenheim, when Nagelsmann's there, you'd be watching to see his development. Players like Kai Havertz, like Leverkusen, RB Leipzig have a lot of really good players. So I think that's what the Bundesliga has that maybe the other two don't. I mean, uh, the Premier League does certainly have this with Leicester, who are sort of like a Leipzig sort of side in terms of their recruitment, sign good young players and sort of develop them in a system which is well-orientated with a good coach as Brendan Rodgers is. But there's not a lot of teams like that. And you do sort of have that sort of dross in the middle, like Everton, who before Carlo Ancelotti, you were thinking, how have you spent all this money? And you're still sort of playing like a Newcastle who are to the bare bones. And even if you look at now Tottenham, Arsenal, Manchester United, even they're starting to fall away as well. So I would definitely definitely say the, the league with the best quality is the Bundesliga by far. If you're looking for a player and they're well suited to the Bundesliga, chances are they're going to be well suited to a top side in La Liga and the Premier League as well. So I've sort of briefly gone over that just in terms of the quality of the league. I would actually also say how entertaining they are. I'd, I'd probably put Premier League number one because that's obviously what I do my analysis on. I support Manchester United, so I um, keep I follow um, the Premier League most. But I think that's sort of my bias. If I had to take my bias out of it, I would probably say the Bundesliga because um, I think when I'm watching lower, lower uh, table Premier League games, I do certainly enjoy the Bundesliga games more than that. And that's probably a, a something to do with maybe my uh, the way I analyse games. I'm sort of more interested in looking for players. But I would definitely say the Bundesliga I do find more entertaining. Maybe not at the top of the table, even though Liverpool and Manchester City have sort of ran away with the leagues. Maybe not last season, but Liverpool and Manchester City were so much better than every other team. It sort of became boring to watch and it gave us sort of a feel of what La Liga was probably like when Barcelona and Real Madrid were at their peak. So overall, I'm just going to do a quick ranking. In terms of quality, I'd go Bundesliga, Premier League, um, La Liga, Syria, and Ligue 1. In terms of the most entertaining, what I want to watch, I'd go for the Premier League just from my bias. Bundesliga, La Liga, Syria, or Ligue 1. I'd probably go for um, Ligue 1 over Syria just because I do find. Actually, no, I'll go for Syria over Ligue 1 just because I do think uh, Syria have a really uh, strong top seven and I do like the games between them. Look at Lazio coming into the thick things this season into Milan, so I'd probably go uh, Syria, uh, uh, yeah, Syria over Ligon. So another question that came up was who was better, Robin van Persie or Fernando Torres? 
I'm going to take this question as who was better in their peak, as it's a, a bit odd to like compare players over the longevity of their career. It's easier just to do it from their prime and see who was best in those few seasons. So obviously, if we look at Torres's prime, I think everyone knows that it became it. It was he was in his prime before uh, 2010, before the move to Chelsea, where he just hit a massive decline. So um, he's. Uh, peak was probably between 2007-2009 I think most people agree with that same with Van Persie his peak was his last season at Arsenal first season at Manchester United so 2011 to 2013 so I'm going to look at those few seasons from each players and compare them so for me I would personally go with Robin Van Persie because um, especially in his last season at Arsenal he was the best player in the league he scored 30 goals that season and he um that season, I think his finishing was just on a complete another level to anyone else. He had the ability to sort of, any time the ball came to him in the box, his first touch was immaculate, position himself in a, a position that would allow him to get a shot away. And um, this is a major factor as to why he scored so many goals. His technique as well was sublime. Probably one of the best strikers in terms of technique that the Premier League has seen. Um, his next season at Manchester United, he followed that up. Uh, uh, scored a lot of similar goals to the ones he did at Arsenal. Really worked well with Rooney. Um, and he worked well a lot when the ball was sort of crossed in. Um, there was a few ricochets, came to him and then he was able to get a shot away. He was excellent at doing that. Torres as well was a very good striker. Um, one of the best strikers in the twin in the 2000 era the 2000s era, sorry, of the Premier League. Um, he was a lot more reliant on pace. He he had that ability to sort of dribble past players that Van Persie didn't. If you look at Torres's first goal in the Premier League against Chelsea, he squares up uh, Tal Benaim and just goes past him uh, like he's uh, like he's like a schoolboy against um, a professional. Barges past him and then slots a ball past Czech, and that sort of. It was a good sort of round, uh, overall sort of summary of Torres's main assets in his first goal in the Premier League. And that season, his first season, 2007-2008 season, he scored, I think, 23 goals in the league and had some uh, good performances in the Champions League as well, such as uh, Liverpool against Arsenal in the Champions League, um, where Liverpool uh, knocked them out in that thrilling, thrilling uh, two games. Even the season after, he was very good as well, the 2008-2009 season, where he linked well with Gerrard perfectly. Arguably, he was maybe better in this season, I'd say, because the overall Liverpool team was better. They were mounting a charge for the title, and um, he did destroy Vidic twice uh, when um, Liverpool faced Manchester United, and that's probably what um, he was best known for throughout his Liverpool career, leaving Vidic on his backside. Um, but I, I would say Van Persie is a better forward if you look at their prime uh, just because I do think even though Van Persie didn't have the same dribbling ability as Torres did Van Persie's finishing ability inside the box was it was phenomenal it was um, probably the best in the world at that point I'd probably say um, in term maybe Ronaldo I'd say probably Ronaldo and then Van Persie at that period but um, I think that's what gave, gave Van Persie the edge and Van Persie, uh, that um, last season at Arsenal, was the best player in the league. Whereas Torres didn't, um, he didn't probably hit the top of that uh, competing pack. He was probably in the third or fourth best player um, in the league in the seasons he was at Liverpool. Obviously, Torres hit the massive decline. Van Persie um, really peaked at the end, at the end of his career. Um, so he didn't have a sustained period either. So this is 
uh, a good, compa- good comparison really because it's two strikers who sort of peaked over a two or three season period um, and they didn't sort of have the longevity that someone like Wayne Rooney had where there was a slower decline etc so it's a good comparison but I would uh, I would prefer Van Persie I'd say Van Persie in his prime compared to Torres's prime was a better striker so that's going to be the end of the first podcast let me know in the comments of my youtube channel on instagram whatever how you thought the podcast was what i need to improve and stuff like that this is sort of like a beta testing version really see um how i can do this in the future just sort of putting it out there and seeing uh, what people like uh, i will be posting clips of the podcast a bit later on in the week and stuff like that so um if you want to like rewatch it or whatever, or you want to just watch the podcast clips, you can. But remember to um, subscribe on YouTube, um, on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you're watching on. Because I will sort of be trying to release these weekly and keep up to date with everything going on in the football world. And you can send me in your questions for me to argue on, such as the Torres Van Persie one, any sort of other one as well, like the Zidane, the Zidane overrated Pogba, whatever. So yeah, so uh, I'll see you in the next podcast.